Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Syria's civil war has driven millions out of the country, many of them into neighboring Turkey. It seemed for a while that those refugees were faring better than their countrymen who journeyed onward to Europe. But as the war has dragged on, Syrians in Turkey are feeling less and less welcome. And a contest between nations is unfolding across Europe and a bit beyond. National pride is at stake. Entrants are vying for prestige and for record deals. As the final of the Eurovision Song Contest approaches, we take a look at the competition's tricky politics. But first... After a simmering hiatus punctuated by cross-party talks and local elections, Brexit is once more bubbling to the surface in Britain. As was clear in Parliament yesterday, Prime Minister Theresa May doesn't exactly enjoy the full support of her party. They've lost confidence in the Prime Minister and wish her to resign before the European elections. Mrs May, not for the first time, blamed Parliament for the quagmire of Brexit delays. This is a government that wants to deliver Brexit and has been working to deliver Brexit. Sadly, so far, so far, the House of Commons has not found a majority to do that. Today, she'll meet a group of parliamentarians from her Conservative Party called the 1922 Committee. On the docket, Mrs May's political future. And she wants to get Parliament to approve tweaked legislation on her plan for leaving the European Union. So, having already failed three times to get her withdrawal agreement through the Commons, she's come back with 4.0. Anne McElvoy is one of our most dedicated followers of Brexit. And she wants to bring that back in the week beginning the 3rd of June. But at the same time, she doesn't have much new to put in that bill. So MPs are asking themselves, why should I vote any differently? If you didn't like it the first three times, here comes serving number four. Among the senior Tory MPs that she'll be speaking with today, what's the mood? Well, I've spoken to a number of Conservatives this week, both at the Cabinet level, where the official message is, yes, she's on her way out, but let's not waste this good crisis. Let's get this Brexit deal through, if they're so minded, and just get something done so that we're not left looking like we had a complete waste of time, Prime Minister. If you go to senior backbench Conservatives and you sit around in the tea rooms and bars inside the Commons or around the Commons, you hear a lot of people saying that's not good enough. We need to know with more clarity, we're the ones out there in the front line in our constituencies. We need a clear date. And crucially, Sir Graham Brady, who is head of the 1922 committee, so-called the most influential backbenchers, has switched from basically allowing the prime minister a bit more of a timeline to messaging very strongly that he wants clarity on when she intends to go. You mentioned this 1922 committee. Who are they? What what power do they wield? And what can she expect when she meets them today? 
they can make or break a conservative leader, for instance, by insisting on a vote of no confidence. They've already had one of those in Theresa May. She survived it, not hugely convincingly, but she did. So that's off the cards for a while. The problem with them meeting again and again in this particularly frustrated frame of mind is that there are some people there calling to change the rule book so they'd have another go at getting rid of her. Well, the hope had been that something might emerge from these talks with Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader. What, that not being the case, what are, uh, what are his thoughts, do you think? What are his calculations? Well, I'm giving you a bit of an eye roll on that one. There are some people who believed in, in these talks, but not that many. Because if you think about it from the position of two parties, one of which the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, an insurgent, hard-left leader of the party, really wants an election. He wants to bring down the Conservative government. So his motivation is really to show that he was prepared to help and was rebuffed and blamed the Conservatives. The Conservative reason for holding them was really, well, to fill in the gap. You know, All these weeks when we haven't been talking so much about it, it meant that something was going on and that the government could say it was trying to reach out across the divide, often a criticism of Theresa May. But I think if you look at the motivations of these two leaders, there's not much that's going to get them to the church on time. British voters seem to have responded to that in recent local elections. Both of the major parties got thumped. Has anybody sort of arisen to kind of take the place of these parties? I've been out on the road looking at areas where the Conservatives need to win seats back. Kent, not so far outside London, much more a mix of Brexit and Remain than than London itself. If you look at a big county like that, it's a funny mixture now of districts which are liberal Democrat, they're green, they're independent. Where we once had red and blue, we now have all sorts of colours of the rainbow. And the two main parties also look set to do badly in a curious election next week. Because Brexit is delayed, Brits must vote for new members of the European Parliament, even though they're due to be out of the European Union by the end of October. And perversely, it's an anti-EU political group that's been one of the hardest campaigners. To the stage, Nigel Farage. It was a rally of the new Brexit party in Pontefract, which is, or near Pontefract, which is an old mining town in West Yorkshire. Very strong Labour. John Pete is our Brexit editor. But the Brexit party is attracting a lot of support from people who voted Leave. It was an area that voted very heavily for Leave. And Nigel Farage and some of his fellow candidates for the Brexit party were wowing the supporters. Good morning, Featherstone. Great to see you all here. Um, and telling them that they were being betrayed by people in Westminster. We voted by a big, clear margin to take back control of our own country. We won! The Conservative Party, um, Theresa May, who were all trying to stop Brexit happening. And it was their duty to vote for the Brexit Party to ensure they got what they wanted. And they were all cheering him on. And what's likely to happen in uh, the upcoming European election? And what do you think that tells us about how how Britons feel about their politicians? Well, I think it is quite likely that um, the Brexit Party will will top the polls. I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking they're going to get close to 30% of the vote. Um, uh, the Conservative Party will do exceptionally badly, could be as low as 10%. Uh, they're not even really campaigning because they didn't want these elections to happen and they're very embarrassed about the fact that Brexit hasn't taken place yet. Um, Labour will also do quite badly because its ambivalence on Brexit, is it a Remain party or a Leave party, does it want a second referendum, is costing its votes. And then the other smaller parties, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens and the new Change UK party, I think will all do quite well because they are unequivocally saying we want to have a second referendum on Brexit. So the country is dividing very strongly between 
People who believe in remain and people who believe in leave, and those divisions are overriding traditional party allegiances. And how could the outcome of the European election uh, influence the way things go with Brexit from here on out? It will clearly damage Theresa May as Prime Minister to do very badly in a European election, and she will get a lot of criticism for having failed to deliver Brexit. But it doesn't sort of obviously feed into some way of solving the Brexit deadlock. So it may not make much difference to to Parliament immediately, and I think the Brexit deadlock will continue even after the Brexit party comes top in this election. What it may do is drive many in the Conservative Party to the idea that they've really just got to get out of Europe with no deal. And that could affect how the how, how the negotiations go through the summer and into the autumn. Um, if there's a strong consensus for leaving with no deal, um, the risk of it happening is greater. On the other hand, a lot of people think to leave with no deal would be a disaster. And I think that the those people will say, well, in that case, we're not going to support the Conservatives. So paradoxically, support for the Labour Party may increase. So there's no clear consensus, whatever the result of this European election, on what kind of Brexit we ought to go for. Still. Still. Thanks very much for your time, John. Thank you. In Idlib, the last rebel-held pocket of land in the north of Syria, bombing raids have intensified this month. Emergency responders posted videos online of buildings destroyed and people killed in bombing raids. President Bashar al-Assad and its allies are claiming victory in the eight-year civil war. But many places are still contested and so dangerous that few refugees will return anytime soon. Millions of those refugees have ended up just over the border in Turkey. There, they've often found access to labor, mostly informal, and government help with health care and schooling. Last year, European Council President Donald Tusk praised Turkey's efforts. I would like to express our appreciation for the impressive work Turkey has been doing and to sincerely thank Turkey and the Turkish people for hosting more than 3 million Syrian refugees these past years. But as the war drags on, the refugees' welcome is wearing thin. Turkey is now in the midst of an economic crisis that has seen inflation rise and unemployment grow as well. Inflation is at its highest in over a decade. Unemployment is also the highest uh, since 2009. Piotr Zalewski is The Economist's Turkey correspondent based in Istanbul. And that has led to a surge in resentment. Whereas the, the, the political climate has been or had been relatively calm, what we saw in the, in the run-up to the last election was evidence that this was changing and that politicians, especially opposition politicians, were increasingly stoking and feeding off anti-refugee sentiment. And even the ruling Justice and Development, AK Party, has changed its tone. You know, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's president and the leader of the AKP, Uh, has been nothing short of a hero to many refugees, many Syrian refugees in Turkey. And even he has sounded a slightly uh, hostile note of late. And and tell me about uh, where you went to to see the effects of this sort of shifting attitude. Well, I went to a city uh, called Mersin, um, which is a port city in Turkey south on the Mediterranean coast. Mersin is a city of 2 million people. Over 10% of uh, the population is Syrian. And this has, I think, 
bred some of the resentments that I mentioned earlier. Evidence of this to me was made clear when I looked at a poll that the then candidate for the mayoralty of Mersin in the current opposition mayor had posted online. Now he asked residents of Mersin you know, what their biggest grievances were. And then the number one answer by far, I think 66% answered simply Syrians. An overwhelming amount of concern about what they think of as the Syrian problem. I mean, when you went to Mersin, what were the Turkish people there telling you? Well, you hear all sorts of grievances, some uh, economic, some cultural. You hear folks saying that Syrians would undercut wages, that they would drive up rents, that Syrian entrepreneurs or small business owners were not paying tax. And you also hear locals saying that Syrians have not assimilated. The overwhelming consensus in Mersin and elsewhere is that the Syrians, in a way, have outworn their welcome and that after so many years, they ought to go back home. But Turkey got a lot of credit um, early on in this in, in terms of bringing uh, refugees into the labor market as a, as a means of, of accomplishing the kind of assimilation that, that you were talking about. And it, it now seems that over the long run, that's had some, some negative consequences. Well, I think Turkey still deserves plenty of credit you know, for accommodating 3.6 million Syrians and allowing them at least some access to the job market. The overwhelming majority do work under the table in, in the grey economy. But, you know, the grey economy in Turkey is big enough to accommodate both Turks and Syrians. So, in a way, that has worked out for the better, you could argue, in that Syrians have been willing to work in jobs that... Turks do not want to work in. So the problem might not be the model. The problem might simply be uh, today the economic downturn in Turkey, where unemployment is growing and where there is increasing competition for jobs also between Turks and and Syrians. And and what about the Syrians that you spoke to in, in Mersin? What are they saying? Well, they sense, you know, the growing resentment, but they also appreciate what Turkey has done uh, for them. When they talk about that, they mention, as does everyone, you know, uh, access to education. They also speak about access to free health care. And I think, you know, few people outside Turkey appreciate just how big a strain all of this has placed on the country and how well, comparatively speaking, Turkey has managed to uh, to cope with it. And I think what Syrians in Mersin and elsewhere also see is that, uh, what they appreciate is that this kind of resentment has very rarely turned into something more uh, sinister. You know, there is an uptick in intercommunal uh, violence, but uh, such violence is still the exception rather than the rule. Finally, many, if not most, Syrians will tell you that Turkey to them feels like home and uh, feels like home much more so than, than today's Syria. Well, that being the case, it seems then that Syrians are kind of stuck between hardening attitudes and a hard place. I mean, how could this resolve itself if everybody is subjected to the same economic conditions and there's increasing political antipathy? What's the way out? One way out, suggested by researchers in, in, in Turkey, is for Turkey to acknowledge that most Syrians are here to stay and to grant them formal refugee status as opposed to temporary protection status and protect them from being returned to to Syria, integrate them into Turkish society and into Turkey's economy much more comprehensively than it has done to date. And 
most analysts think this is also where Europe needs to step up. Now, the EU has essentially outsourced the refugee issue to Turkey, paying the Turkish government billions of uh, euros to keep the refugees on Turkey's side of the Mediterranean. But now it is down to Europe to make every effort and to spare no expense to help Turkey take the next step, which is to integrate the refugees. Piotr, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This weekend, singers, musicians, and dry-ice technicians are gathering in Israel for the Eurovision final. If you haven't had the pleasure of watching Eurovision, it's an international music competition. Countries nominate an act who competes for phone-in votes. The performances are often incredibly cheesy and camp. It launched the careers of ABBA and Celine Dion. Let the Eurovision Song Contest begin! One of the most watched contestants this year is Hatari. Anna Lankas works on the news desk here at The Economist and is our foremost expert on Eurovision which is a band from Iceland that describe themselves as an anti-capitalist BDSM that stands for bondage, discipline, sadism, masochism, techno band. It's a mix of rock and techno and metal and they're shouting and they wear spikes and leather outfits and gyrate around in cages. Um, they sound, I mean, confusing if nothing else. Do, do you think they're going to win? <laughs> They could. Um, they're certainly well-known. They're probably one of the most well-known acts this year. But they're in the spotlight for another reason. And that is that they have said that they might use their platform to criticize Israel for its treatment of Palestinians. They've even challenged Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, to a friendly match of trouser grip wrestling, um, which is called glima. And it's an Icelandic form of wrestling. Why, though, is Eurovision in Israel? So. Israel is a member of the European Broadcasting Union, and all members of the European Broadcasting Union can compete in Eurovision. And the contestant who wins, their country gets to host the competition the next year. So last year, the competition was hosted in Lisbon, and it was won by Netta Barzilai, who is Israeli. So this year, Israel gets to play MC. Why, why is that controversial? It's controversial for several reasons. One is the BDS movement, which is the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, um, has called on broadcasters and artists to withdraw from the competition because they think that Israel is using Eurovision to, uh, they say, art wash crimes against Palestinians. So what are relations between the EU and Israel like? They have become more tense in recent years, even as Israel moves closer to America. 
That's because European leaders have remained outspoken in their support for Palestine and they're critical of Israeli policies in the occupied territories. The EU, for example, requires that products made in Israeli settlements be labeled as such. So they can't say made in Israel. They have to say made on an Israeli settlement. And the relations are even more tense this month because there's been an uptick in violence between Israelis and Palestinians. I mean, this sounds like the the sort of politicization of a thing that's supposed to just be a bit of fun. No, it's definitely politicized every single year. Um, so in 2014, for example, Conchita Wurst, a bearded drag queen from Austria, won the competition. And that upset conservatives in Belarus and Russia, so much so that lawmakers in Russia proposed uh, a parallel competition. Um, then in 2016, Ukraine won the competition uh, with a song about Joseph Stalin's deportation of Crimean Tatars. They kill you both and say we're not guilty. With thinly veiled references to Russia's annexation of Crimea, a peninsula in Ukraine, in 2014. And that led to the year after um, Ukraine banning Russia's candidate because they had performed in the annexed territory. So do you think having the final in Tel Aviv will disrupt this year's Eurovision? Actually, not that much. Um, Unlike in previous years, nobody has withdrawn from this competition. For example, in the 1970s, several European countries boycotted um, Eurovision when it was held in Spain under the fascist dictatorship of Francisco Franco. But there's definitely been a lot of noise about this. And Israel has responded with um, a PR campaign this month that uses Google advertisements to direct people who are looking for BDS or Eurovision to a pro-Israeli website that claims Israel is beautiful, diverse and sensational. So it's a play on the BDS initials. Right. Well, one last thing then. Who are you rooting for in the contest? I think Atari are great, even though they're pretty controversial. Their music is pretty funky. Anna, thanks for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.